Bookstack with Richard Aldous, the Books and Ideas podcast brought to you by AmericanPurpose.com. Uh, you can check our website for all the latest commentary and analysis, and it's where you can sign up for live Zoom events, including this month the former British Foreign Secretary and Head of the International Rescue Committee, David Miliband. Coming up on the show today, Susan Eisenhower, author of the new book, How Ike Led, the principles behind Eisenhower's biggest decisions. Uh, Susan, welcome to Bookstack. Well, thank you. It's wonderful to be with you. And congratulations uh, on the book. Of course, how Ike led is also how your grandfather led. Uh, yes, that's right. Um, and I uh, chose that title specifically because uh, I thought what was important about it was the how. Um, a little bit less than the what. And I mean, just to talk about the personal connection before we move on to the historical figure, I mean, it, it, how do you remember him as a grandfather? You talk about the odd intimacy that you had, but also life in the spotlight uh, and the fact even that uh, he named a pony after you, Sassy Sue. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, that was very observant of you. Yes. Well, uh, no, I, I think we had a remarkably normal family life to the extent that uh, anything could be normal in that kind of an environment. But we certainly, when we were as a family together, we were, um, you know, very close knit. Uh, my father always used to say, now, uh, we're not going to let you start wearing the boss's stars. Uh, another way of saying, um, don't get too full of yourself because this is about him, not you. And I want to thank my parents for that. It sure helped in life uh, not to mistake my importance for his. Um, and so there was a, uh, growing up, there was a lot of training around um, compartmentalizing one's personal life with him from uh, his own policymaking. And sometimes people could overstep the boundary. You tell a, a story, I perhaps might ask you to retell it now, about a teacher uh, asking you why your grandfather didn't intervene on behalf of Hungary in 1956. And he came back with what we might describe as a very tart reply to that question. <laughs> Well, Granddad didn't like uh, people taking advantage of his grandchildren for their own um, for their own purposes. He was so uh, generous and caring with uh, people he didn't know, but this was something he really didn't like. And uh, I also uh, know that my brother has a few stories like that where he was sent home to ask questions, and it was very much discouraged. Uh, I think uh, Ike was trying to make sure that we, you know, had as normal a family life as possible, but it's not helpful, especially since that teacher put me in an awkward position. I, I was um, probably in eighth grade at the time and didn't see how I could say I wouldn't do that. And I think that his reply to that, which which does give an insight into how he led, actually, was what and start World War Three. <laughs> exactly. Um, well, that uh, certainly got to the bottom line quickly, didn't it? Um, <laughs> I would say, though, that, um, you know, that was the great dilemma of um, intervening in, in Hungary because there was uh, no way to, uh, you know, uh, intervene in Hungary uh, using conventional uh, weapons. So uh, this would threaten to be a nuclear confrontation. And this was one of the things that uh, was very much on his mind throughout this very uh, uncertain time. Um, both politically, I should say geopolitically, 
um, and also with the advent of uh, atomic and hydrogen bombs. And sometimes uh, he would use you for what we might describe as uh, diplomatic uh, purposes. For example, when uh, the Soviet leader Nikita Khrushchev visited the country, uh, you actually met Khrushchev. What, what was that like at the farm at Gettysburg? Well, actually, um, Grandad uh, brought over uh, world leaders all the time to um, to meet us. We uh, lived on a property adjacent to the Eisenhower farm, and I, I regard that as my uh, childhood home. Uh, in any case, uh, in the case of Khrushchev, they, they could not reach an agreement, uh, you know, the U.S. president and the Soviet premier, up at Camp David. So um, my grandfather got on the phone, got my mother to round us all up as he um, requested, and uh, get over to the house shortly. I, I call it the grandchildren's strategy, <laughs> Richard, and that is that uh, he was looking for common ground with Khrushchev, and he knew a lot about the Soviet Union from uh, the war years. And you know, everybody knows that children are the universal uh, language of um, adult connection. And so we were we were brought over to kind of soften up, I guess, the, the Soviet premier um, in anticipation of the next round of their negotiation. And I think you say in the book that your memory of, of Khrushchev is that he was a bit like Santa Claus, but without the white beard. <laughs> That's right. And, and the red suit, of course. Well, um, actually, Khrushchev was uh, fascinating enough for me to um, inspire me to spend uh, 27 years of my career working on uh, U.S.-Soviet and then later um, uh, U.S.-Russian relations. And, um, you know, there's still phenomenal amount to do since relations are in a particularly bad place right now. Um, but it, it was intriguing. It was intriguing about the way the Khrushchev visit was uh, handled nationally. Uh, Khrushchev came to the United States for 10 days. And it was intriguing by the way my parents responded to all of this and all of the admonitions we got about not being too enthusiastic. And if there are any members of the press camped outside of school, do not talk to them. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder, I mean, how do you go about writing a book like this, which is part memoir, part history, uh, writing about your own grandfather, but also with the kind of access of the kind that you've just described there that almost no other historians writing on this period would have? Well, the thing is, is that I, I did bring um, some compartmentalization uh, to this exercise, but this is the first time I've tried to put it all together. And I think the, the, the one area, first of all, I'm completely used to people, you know, um, asking negative questions and, and, and the rest of it. It's not like we weren't used to that from um, growing up in a highly politically charged environment. Um, but having said that, I think where I offered uh, something special in this book is that I knew him um, pretty, I mean, I knew him well enough, uh, spent uh, days every week with him and riding his horses and being intimately uh, connected to his, um, you know, his qualities, etc. It helped in reading some of the scholarship to understand what people didn't understand about how the way he looked at things. Um, for instance, he would always tell us, never corner anybody. Um, and sometimes this is misunderstood um, in, in the scholarship. And so I was, I was able to 
um, underscore some of those things I understood about him too. He always liked to say, for instance, uh, well, how does it look to the other guy? I want to hear you analyze how it looks to the other guy. Yeah, that's, that's actually something that comes across very clearly in the book, this sense that he's an empiricist, that uh, one of his uh, um, sayings that you quote is, let's not make our mistakes in a hurry, that he, he likes to let the experts have their say before he makes a strategic decision, very often actually not getting involved in the operational detail of that decision. Well, what's really interesting about it is this is a very contemporary debate. I don't know if you've been following the discussion um, between <clears throat> in the leadership community about thinking fast versus thinking slow. Uh, Ike made a very big point of saying during the war, when he was Supreme Allied Commander, he had to make decisions very quickly based on incomplete information. And as he said, after he um, became president, uh, many of the issues he was dealing with could actually benefit from thinking of things more slowly, uh, doing more study, unless, of course, there was an immediate crisis. Um, but uh, many of the issues that were delicate and sensitive actually benefited from some, um, some study and some perspective, and he took advantage of those opportunities when he had them. And it, it is worth saying, I mean, we haven't actually put it on there, kind of put it right out there yet, that, I mean, it is an astonishing career, isn't it? I mean, both as a soldier and as a politician, that it, it's the kind of thing that when you look back through history, you don't find very many examples. Perhaps the Duke of Wellington at the, uh, at, at, uh, the Battle of Waterloo and then the British Prime Minister. But there aren't that many examples of those who operate at the very highest levels militarily and at the very highest levels politically. Well, I think that's right. And it's one reason why a lot of people uh, make misjudgments about how he thought about things, uh, because um, scholars tend to, uh, I say tend, there's some exceptions to this, but scholars tend to fall into uh, two categories, either those who are interested in the war years or those who are interested in the presidency. And I found it a lot in the scholarship around the presidency that um, maybe some of the scholars, uh, first of all, I'm indebted to all of these uh, great books and all this great work that's been done, but sometimes you would see indications that they kind of forgot he used to be a military man. Um, and uh, I wanted to make the point that General Eisenhower and President Eisenhower were the same person um, and that he often thought about political matters in a rather military way. In other words, what kind of, what, how much real estate, um, you know, am I in control of at the moment? Where are my opponents? Uh, do we have a broad front in, a, in approaching our um, opponents or are we going to go straight up the middle? You know, a lot of those debates from the war. Um, and I don't know, it just came naturally uh, for me to assess it that way in large measure because I had my um, a very close relationship with my father, who was also a military man, and we spent many hours walking battlefields and talking military strategy. And I think that I mean, obviously, we don't want to get into the weeds of that uh, of that scholarship now. But but it's interesting how Eisenhower has been seen differently over time, particularly since the documents came out. Uh, that uh, very much in the immediate aftermath of his presidency, he was seen as somebody who really was just a figurehead. That John Foster Dulles was the driving force in the administration. 
Whereas I think most um, historians now actually realise that Eisenhower was the driving force in his own administration, that and that was something that John Foster Dulles himself recognised, but it was just this very understated way of leadership that didn't necessarily draw attention to itself. Well, I think that's exactly correct. And I think it's an important thing to note because he did bring to bear a different leadership style. But what I found interesting in doing the research for this is how much he replicated um, much of the structure that he utilized during World War II and recreated that in the White House. So the system he put together was one that worked for him. Um, and if you're trying to, if, if your underlying objective is to bring about unity of purpose, which I point out in the book, then you have to be um, dealing with your subordinates in a, in a different kind of way. Um, you, can't, you can't lead um, in a dictatorial fashion, even if you do have the final decisions. You've got to hear people out. You're trying to uh, co-opt them into a, a, a process to bring about progress. Uh, and so I, I saw real similarities. And by the way, I even saw a similarity in uh, his cabinet. Um, the cabinet looked an awful lot like uh, the people who were his subordinates uh, during World War II. Uh, so uh, that's that's another area where I thought uh, connecting the dots would be important. I mean, you talk about building consensus. Some of his critics have argued that perhaps that means he moved too slowly, for example, uh, turning a blind eye to some of the e extremes of McCarthyism and the witch hunts, for example, not being vocal enough about those kind of things. What, 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 where, where do you stand on questions like that? Well, I don't think that he turned a blind eye to McCarthy at all. But you see, this is back to the point we made earlier. Um, in both civil rights and in the McCarthy period, um, he was very astute at analyzing what he controlled and what he didn't control. What Dwight Eisenhower didn't control during the McCarthy period was the Senate of the United States. Uh, Congress is a co-equal branch of of the government and the executive branch does not control um, Congress or the Senate of the United States. So his objective had to be to get members of his own party to repudiate uh, McCarthy and his methods. Uh, the fact that it took longer, um, of course, is, is deeply regrettable, but he had, he had no way of compelling senators to censure uh, one of their own if they didn't want to. Um, and I think that's that's a, a strategic notation that um, often doesn't end up in the books. Um, if you can't control it, then you've got to persuade it. You've got to set people up to, or, or to put it another way, to give McCarthy enough rope to hang himself, which is what it ended up um, amounting to. Yeah, I, I, I suppose it's the question on something like McCarthyism, but also on the question of civil rights, where, as you say, I mean, he sends in the 101st Airborne Division to Little Rock to enforce federal law. The The, the question is whether he should have used what uh, uh, Theodore Roosevelt described as the bully pulpit of uh, the, the presidency to force the pace uh, more, well, than, more than he did. I think that's an excellent uh, question, and I think that that's going to uh, remain a long-standing debate. But um, again, my mission here was to 
show how Ike led rather than saying whether his decisions were right or wrong. Uh, he felt very strongly that if you get up and you publicly attack somebody, what you're really doing is, number one, making a dedicated enemy. That would be the person you've just attacked. And by the way, inspire the people who support that person to rally to that person's defense. So he thought it was strategically crazy to empower um, Joseph McCarthy, who actually just wanted to get his name in the paper, who wanted his position as a junior senator um, to um, be elevated to the level of the presidency. And so in, in typical military fashion, Ike was not going to give his um, adversary or enemy or whatever you want to call it, what they wanted or what he wanted, I should say, in this case. Um, so, yeah, there'll be a lot of uh, debate about it, but he managed to successfully bring an end to McCarthyism, which um, Harry Truman, unfortunately, was unable to do, um, you know, for uh, a range of reasons. I and mean, we've talked about the the political style and we've talked about uh, him as a military leader. I wonder how much do you think that his background from uh, Abilene, Kansas uh, affected him, not just style, not just in terms of style, but also in, in terms of, of character? Well, I think uh, the character uh, element of it is extremely important. He had um, two um, really interesting uh, parents. His mother was uh, a very gentle soul who was in favor of cooperation, and she was a very wise, calm woman. His father, um, you know, was the family disciplinary, and this combination actually worked pretty well. It produced a, a man who was highly disciplined personally, um, but who had uh, a very empathetic streak, which I think he got from his mother. Um, but I would say um, that there was no small amount of rebellion on Dwight Eisenhower's part because he grew up in a uh, pacifist household. I mean, this wasn't just uh, passing pacifism. His mother was an ardent pacifist. She had uh, grown up just after the Civil War and abhorred war and everything to do with it. So when it was clear that he wasn't going to get, um, uh, you know, wasn't going to benefit from a younger brother putting him through college, as he did for his older brother, uh, he went to uh, the United States Military Academy, uh, apparently uh, the only time in the family that anyone had seen his mother cry. And, you know, that took a lot of courage, I think, um, for a family that, that was that religious and that, uh, um, that connected. And there, there is a sense. I mean, I've I've been to Abilene to the to the Eisenhower Library, and 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 it's a wonderful, remarkable place. And you genuinely do feel when you're there that you are somehow right in the heart of America. And that seems to be something that is represented in Eisenhower himself, and perhaps is something that uh, is less prominent in politics today. Well, that's right. There's a there's a kind of balance to it. And I think maybe that's what you're talking about. But there's a kind of balance to it. And actually, um, if your listeners would like to um, understand Dwight Eisenhower a bit more, I would recommend um, his um, his speech to uh, the uh, Guildhall in London just after World War Two. Uh, I know for a fact because I knew his secretaries very well and I knew the secretary that took this dictation, but he wrote every word of that speech himself. 
um, and then got up, had it memorized, and uh, gave the speech without a note. Um, but having said that, there's a lot there about I come from the heart of America, um, and there's some wonderful things in there about his strong and passionate uh, feeling for the British people. It's, it's an interesting side of Eisenhower, and, and you bring it out beautifully in the book, that uh, he's not often thought of as an intellectual president in the way that, say, John F. Kennedy, who uh, kind of made a great deal of the books that he read and so on. But but Eisenhower had a, a deep interest in history, and it does, uh, you make clear, it does seem to have affected uh, his decision-making and thinking about uh, his place in both politics uh, and on the battlefield? Well, there, there are two things here. He was very fortunate to have a mentor named General Fox Connor, who had worked closely with uh, John Pershing during the First World War as uh, commander of operations. And uh, he was one of Eisenhower's most important mentors. And he had uh, Eisenhower running through the paces. I think uh, during that period in the 1920s, Ike read uh, Clausewitz three times, uh, was schooled on it, uh, read all sorts of books on um, military strategy um, and uh, was was exceedingly well read in in those areas. Um, but you know, uh, he wasn't he wasn't the kind of guy who'd go around and brag to people about how much he knew or to be quoting all the books he read. It just wasn't his style. Um, he was a very, very good listener. Um, he made people feel very good. I know that I saw it myself. Um, and it, it, it was just a different style. It might interest you to know that his favorite of all presidents was George Washington. Uh, for Washington's decision to uh, not to do more than two terms, at this what you might call a judicious use of power. And I suppose that comes back to what we were talking about before with uh, Eisenhower and the Duke of Wellington, that George Washington would be another one of those figures operating right at the highest level militarily uh, and then politically. Well, I think uh, I think that's why he was intrigued by Washington is because he could see some of the incongruities of coming um, to political life as a military man. And I, you know, I can only speculate on the rest of it, though. Uh, he did keep diaries and he did write a number of memoirs. So we get um, evidence of that. Uh, he also um, became a pretty good portrait painter and uh, painted both uh, Lincoln um, and Washington. And Although you, you do, you have a great story uh, in the book about that where uh, your, grandf your grandfather uh, is at an exhibition that's been put on of his paintings and he says something, something along the lines of, you know, listen, we both know that these paintings would be burnt if I hadn't been, if I hadn't been president of the United States. <laughs> well, that's what I mean. He, had, uh, he did not have a... Um... Uh, you have to have an ego to be a leader, of course, but he didn't have, you know, um, an outsized ego where uh, he had to, um, you know, pretend things <laughs> weren't true. But I think that often happens at the top, don't you? You know, people who have really um, seen a lot and have uh, taken a lot of responsibility in their lives, they tend to be a, a remarkably modest group, actually. So what do you think that Ike's legacy was for America? Well, first of all, he did find a unity of purpose as much as anybody ever could have, I think. And 
And I'm very proud of the fact that uh, in the, you know, the uncertain, frightening days of the Cold War, you know, before there were any rules of the game, you might say, uh, that he kept the peace. There were no um, combat casualties after he ended the Korean War, which is pretty remarkable for a um, seven and a half uh, year uh, expanse. And then he also um, brought the economy back under control balanced the budget three times in eight years and came close on two or three other occasions, uh, which is a remarkable record when you think that the country was modernizing. He built the interstate highway system and infrastructure and fiscal responsibility were residing uh, together in the same administration. Yeah, I, I'm interested in that first point that you make there about uh, kind of trying to find consensus. You, you say towards the end of the book that one of the consistent elements of his uh, life was articulating the things that Americans agreed on. There's a, a, a And I was just struck that in, in many ways, uh, President Biden it seems to be trying to emulate that strategy of consistently talking about consensus and trying to to, to emphasize the things Americans agreed on. Of course, he would have been 10 years old when uh, President Eisenhower was elected in 1952. I wonder whether there's, there's a kind of a genuine echo there of Eisenhower. Well, there is a genuine echo there. Um, I, I agree with you. I, um, I, I hear some of it and even some of the phrases he uses. And uh, obviously, he's a, a dedicated Democrat, but I uh, think that that doesn't make it impossible for him to have been influenced um, by that presidency. And if you think about it, at 10 years old, politics becomes a very um, interesting kind of powerful force in a lot of young people's lives. And also that uh, for that generation, it wouldn't simply have been uh, the politics. It's also the way in which the Second World War would have continued to loom large in, in the imagination at that time. And again, the fact that uh, Eisenhower was both war leader uh, and president, uh, presumably uh, must, must, have, must have had an effect on, on a young boy of that age. Well, I think so. And I know um, that uh, all of us uh, wish um, President Biden well. We wish um, whoever is our president well, um, because it's the only president we have. And I think uh, Biden himself uh, understands that this is a moment, that, that uh, the biggest challenge is going to be uniting this country. If I could just add one more thing, um, Ike believed that uh, deep, deep political divisions were very dangerous, especially during the Cold War. And as he said at one point, that these deep divisions uh, would be a welcome sight for an alert enemy. Yeah, I wonder. I, I, I wonder what you think about the Republican Party today. Uh, what you think your grandfather would have thought about the Republican Party today, and whether is is it still the party of Eisenhower? Do you think? Oh, I, I think that the the party is um, has moved so far away from the Eisenhower idea of the middle way. I uh, remember he calls his two-term presidency the middle way. <laughs> um, and I, I think that the Republican Party has a very big challenge. Um, as Granddad always used to say, you've got to be for something. He used to admonish us all the time. Don't be negative. You have to be for something. And the Republican Party has to be for something now. It, it, has, to, uh, no it has to move from being a party of grievance to a party of solutions. And I, I just don't know whether I'm a registered independent now, so I, I don't know whether they're going to be able to pull it off.
Yeah, we'll that, that it's it's very striking that uh, that comment that uh, you introduce right at the end of the book about you've got to be for something. You know, I do, I I wonder what you think um, uh, America should be for today that learns from how Ike led, and you know what is the answer to that question that you say he continually asked both himself but also those who worked with him. What's best for America? Well, that's right. And I would say central to not just what's best for America, but what's fair. What's fair for American citizens? I mean, he had, uh, again, this middle way is a very, very powerful concept. Everybody thinks being um, a moderate is, is a sign of weakness these days. No, he makes the case very strongly. Uh, and I quote this in the book, uh, that, that uh, the hard work is in the middle. The hard work is finding common ground. The hard work is making progress, not, and I, I think he would be very distressed by this kind of winner takes all mentality that we've got today. Uh, and if we don't begin to think um, a little bit more about how to draw all Americans into a national conversation about what progress looks like, I think we're in trouble. So the book is How Ike Led, The Principles Behind Eisenhower's Biggest Decisions. It's written by my guest, Susan Eisenhower, uh, and published by Thomas Dunn Books. But for now, Susan, uh, congratulations again, and thanks for joining us on Bookstack. Thank you. So that's it from us this week. Don't forget to check our website, AmericanPurpose.com, and to leave us a review on your podcast app. The show is produced by Demir Marusik. Do join us again next week. But for now, this is me, Richard Alder, saying thanks for listening. Thank you.